Welcome to Novak Now here on the Nachum Siegel Network. I am your host, Jake Novak. You can follow me on Twitter, by the way, at, at JakeJakeNY is my Twitter handle. And follow me on Facebook as well. Just look up Jake Novak and you'll follow me there. I promise to interact with all respectful, non-vulgar and angry uh, questions. I do like to answer honest questions, even if you really are disappointed in something I've said. Uh, and I will be happy to do that. Um, what can I tell you? This is going to be a barn burner of a show a little bit because, look, folks, it's been a year and a half or so since the election of Donald Trump as our president. And it's been that year and a half. And what can I tell you? I can't really say it any other way. I am nothing short of just embarrassed of the way most, again, most of the Jewish community has continued to respond to his election over these last 18 months. Uh, there's really only one word to describe it, and it's in Yiddish. And the, most of the Jewish community has acted with total and utter mishigas at this president's election. But let's face it, the Jewish community over many, many decades in this country has responded in strange, sometimes irresponsible, and often really just inappropriate ways to the election of many presidents and the actions of many presidents. So we're going to talk about that today because, sadly, no real leader in the Jewish community that I can think of, one either from the rabbinic world or from secular Jewish organization or world, has really leveled with the Jewish people about what the appropriate response is to this election, the appropriate response to anyone's election in any country, to any real important post. And it's time for us to really have that discussion in the Jewish community because the embarrassment is going, I consider it to be just way too far. Now, I'll start with my own personal experience with this. Uh, as many of you know who've been following me as a television producer, blogger, writer, editorial columnist for many years, you probably know I never, never endorse candidates. I don't endorse candidates. I don't tell people whom to vote for. I never have. I never will. Uh, and I include that in my private life as well. I don't, I'm not a proselytizer or missionizer for any candidate. I do admit to talking down candidates very often. That's something that I do very often. But when I do that, I don't say, and thus you should vote for the other guy or gal. That's not what I do. Nevertheless, despite what turned out to be very accurate analysis of the Trump election uh, on my end, I was the only person in the entire NBC Universal family who predicted the election correctly. In May and June of 2016, I came up with a couple of columns explaining why Donald Trump would win. Uh, I don't consider myself a prophet or a genius for figuring that out. I think that the folks who didn't see that as a strong possibility were basically a little bit too emotionally invested in either Hillary Clinton or against Donald Trump to kind of see facts rationally. Uh, nevertheless, despite the fact that I, all I did was predict his election and try to remind people voting for Hillary or people expecting her to win or people not expecting Donald Trump to win that he was likely to win, the day after he was elected, I was contacted by someone who I hadn't heard from in over 21 years, a high school classmate of mine, who posted a series of articles about anti-Semitic graffiti attacks, I guess you could say, incidents down in the South, and decided that I was somehow at least tangentially responsible for them and needed to explain why someone who was not lividly angry at Donald Trump and was predicting he would win the election, how he as a Jew could explain these anti-Semitic attacks. Now, if that sounds like a crazy accusation and a crazy responsibility to lay at my feet, you're right. But as I said, 
we had a tremendous amount of this country, particularly the Jewish community, a big part of the Jewish community, that was too emotionally and irrationally invested in this election in the first place. Now, of course, a lot of you probably saw these stories. Uh, not so much during the election, but in the weeks after the election, there were a spate of what we would call racial attacks, racial and anti-Semitic attacks, um, quite a few of them. Uh, some of them were just graffiti. Some of them were alleged assaults. Some were violent. Some, some were vandalism. And as I'm sure many of you hopefully learned not long after, a tremendous percentage and really the majority of these incidents turned out to be misleading. I'm not going to call them hoaxes and I'll explain that in a moment. It turned out that most of these attacks, in quotes, were perpetrated by anti-Trump folks, sometimes members of the Jewish community themselves, sometimes members of the African-American community, very often members of the Muslim community. There were a lot of reported incidents of women having their hijabs ripped off and Muslims being verbally attacked and threatened. And it turned out that these were made up incidents by either the people who purported themselves to be the victims of those attacks or people in their own community. And of course, in the Jewish community, the two biggest examples we had of this were bomb threats and other threats phoned in and otherwise messaged to Jewish community centers across the country. It turned out a couple of those threats were made by an African-American journalist who was trying to apparently threaten his girlfriend. He was a very known anti-Trump uh, journalist. And of course, the bulk of the JCC threats came from a clearly a mentally disturbed teenager living in Israel, Jewish uh, teenager. And those cases are still being resolved as we, as we speak. But we do know that they were not perpetrated by anti-Semites or by purported white supremacists. And I want to pause here for a second and just say very clearly, folks, I am not saying there isn't a white supremacist problem in this country. There is clearly a white supremacist problem in parts of Europe as well. I don't believe it's on the rise compared to where we were even 30 years ago, but it's there. And I, I admit that we're not trying to say there aren't anti-Semitic white supremacist groups out there, but it's very, very, very disturbing that this tremendous spate of hate crimes, and again, I, I do believe they are hate crimes, and I'll explain that in a second, that were supposedly perpetrated by Trump supporters were actually made up incidents to not only hurt the Jewish community and put fear into the hearts of the Jewish community, but to slur and to smear Trump supporters. And that is, of course, what happened. I think one of the best people who was able to really summarize the outrageousness of this over the past year is a man named David Bernstein, who's a law professor in Washington, DC. He also happens to be a fellow Yeshiva Flappish graduate. Those of you who know me know I'm a very proud graduate of the Yeshiva Flappish High School. So is David. David was actually in my sister's class three years ahead of me. And he wrote a fantastic article very early in 2017 when it was already quite clear that the bulk of these incidents, these supposed anti-Semitic incidents were being perpetrated by phonies to say, to really put it in the most blunt terms. And he wrote an editorial in the Washington Post called The Great Anti-Semitism Panic of 2017. It's a very, very brilliant article. I will put it up on my Twitter feed a little bit later, but if you want to find it on Google, just Google The Great Anti-Semitic Panic of 2017 by David Bernstein. And he made a very, very clear argument. First of all, listing 
the real truths behind all of these attacks and giving links to where you could find out what was really behind them. He also talked about how most liberal Jews are behind this stoking of panic about the rise of anti-Semitism in this country. They are going into their synagogues if they're conservative or reform rabbis and talking about this constantly. The Jewish secular organizations are talking about this constantly, quite notably the Anti-Defamation League led by Jonathan Greenblatt, a former Obama administration official, who literally said earlier in 2017 that the rise of the Trump campaign and his election has brought back anti-Semitic discourse in this country that we hadn't seen since the 1930s. And as David Bernstein pointed out, that was really one of the toughest things to, to swallow uh, that we had heard in a long time, because those of us who remember the administration of George W. Bush during the Iraq War, the extreme and vitriolic and frightening anti-Semitic rhetoric that came from the left during the Iraq War, basically and continually, even to this day, blaming the Jewish community and Israel for somehow convincing America to go to war with Iraq. And as David Bernstein points out, and everyone should note, this wasn't some radical leftist group on, on, in, in the streets. This wasn't a Black Panther organization. This wasn't an Antifa organization. These were noted papers and books coming out of Harvard University and the University of Chicago. Um, I could go into a lot of examples, and I will later, to discuss the relative way that we can compare the way Jewish organizations have acted from time to time depending on who the president is. But the point is, we've had fire stoked in this country and we've had a false narrative presented to most Jews in this country from their own Jewish leaders about some kind of spike in anti-Semitism just because Donald Trump has been elected. And again, I do not deny that there were some white supremacists, especially early in his campaign, who somehow felt some kind of an affinity with Donald Trump for whatever reason. Uh, maybe it was over his comments over immigration. Maybe it was over some other statements he had made against the government bureaucracy in Washington. It certainly couldn't have been anything that Donald Trump had said pretty much about Israel because his comments about Israel for the most part have been incredibly positive. But for whatever reason, I do admit uh, that absolutely there was some white supremacist affinity to Donald Trump. But the argument that white supremacism is on the rise because of him is just not based in fact. It's not based in fact, folks. And we have to understand that. So again, nevertheless, despite the fact that by the time we reached February, very early in his presidency, February 2017, despite the fact that by that point, the bulk of these supposed attacks had been proven to be false flag type operations, phony operations, despite the fact that by February, we knew that the JCC bomb threats in, in their entirety had been made by people who were not white supremacists, and at least one of them was actually a Trump hater. Despite that fact, Here's what Donald Trump had to say at the end of February after visiting the African American History Museum, the new museum in Washington, D.C., where he made a special point of talking about these incidents. Let's roll the first uh, soundbite from President Trump in February of 2017. The anti-Semitic threats targeting our Jewish community and community centers are horrible and are painful and a very sad reminder of the work that still must be done to root out hate and prejudice and evil. So there you had it. Donald Trump had the opportunity 
really at that moment to take a low road. He could have very easily stood up in that speech and said, and by the way, all these attacks that have been meant to slur me and to smear my supporters turned out to be fake. I mean, you can just see the tweet. You can just see him talking like one of his tweets, boasting about how none of that was true. And yet he still mentioned, and I think rightfully so, the importance and the severity of those JCC threats. And here's why I think it's important. And here's why we need to be very, 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 very focused on what, again, these fake attacks and not necessarily call them hoaxes. And I know I just did it. You don't necessarily want to call them fake attacks. I'm going to call them attacks that are meant to smear, misleading attacks. That's, I think, a better way to put it. Fake hate crimes, hate crimes that are perpetrated by the victims themselves, hate crimes that are staged are doubly serious. They are worse than a real hate crime. And I'm going to explain why. Because what's the point of a hate crime? Now, if you're the direct victim, if someone is personally assaulted or if their building is vandalized, yes, that person is, is a target of the hate crime. But the point is to make sure that that, entire, that person's entire community is frightened and scared. So even though these attacks were staged by people who were supposedly victims, that widespread hatred and anger and fear was spread anyway. And then, of course, you have the double crime of the fact that they were trying to smear innocent people who had nothing to do with these attacks. So they are doubly serious. And I think people who are caught faking hate crimes should be given double the sentence and double the punishment of those who commit actual hate crimes against other people. Because, again, these hate crimes are real in every other sense, and they smear innocent people. So they hurt a double set of people. So this is a very, very serious problem. And it's one that hopefully will be subsiding. It seems to definitely have subsided since the first few months after the election, and that's a good thing. But we're still hearing incidents like, like this, and we're also seeing the news media continue to pull a general lazy attitude about following up on the, the facts of these incidents. They are never shy about publicizing these hate crimes when they believe they're actual hate crimes committed by actual white supremacists. But when it turns out it's someone perpetrating a crime upon themselves to smear Trump voters or smear somebody else in a community, they don't do anywhere near as a good a job of publicizing it. And we all know that. And that is another tremendous shame on the news media. So really, you can almost call it a triple crime when these fake things happen. So that's where we were in February of 2017, February of last year. And then, of course, a few months later, as we got into the summer, we had one of the most terrible incidents in recent American history when it came to racial strife. And that was the neo-Nazi white supremacist march in Charlottesville that was supposedly supposedly set up to protest the taking down of certain Confederate war hero statues in Charlottesville. Again, Charlottesville, the home of the University of Virginia, a very beautiful place, a place that I used to live near. My father was a professor for several years at the University of Virginia, so Charlottesville is very close to me and my heart, and I know it quite well. And of course, that incident attracted a bunch of different groups to Charlottesville on that particular weekend. And there was violence. And there was a woman, an innocent woman, who was there to protest against the white supremacists who was killed in, in a deliberate car ramming incident. I mean, the whole thing was very, very disappointing and very, very disturbing and just a tragedy and an atrocity on many different levels. And we also know that there were groups there that were there to protest against, like I said, against the white supremacists, who, by the way, needed weeks and weeks and weeks to get together a few hundred uh, white supremacist marchers from all over the, really, I guess, all over North America to show up. Uh, again, not saying that white supremacism isn't a, pro isn't a problem in this country. It probably will never be wiped out. But I cannot believe that 30, 40 years ago, they would have had to have worked four or five weeks to get a few hundred folks to show up. 
And then, of course, as we know, and this is completely documented, there were a small number of folks who were not white supremacists and were not there necessarily to, to protest against them, but were there to protest in favor of First Amendment rights. How many of them? I don't know. Probably only a couple dozen. But that's, those were the facts, as we have now learned them, completely, un, completely unassailable and verified. But, of course, the big issue in Charlottesville didn't become the fact that this woman died. Of course, that should have been the top story and the story that everyone continues to talk about. The top story, once again, became President Trump and how he responded to it a couple of days later. And this very, very spicy back and forth he had with the news media a couple of days after the Charlottesville riot. So let's run that soundbite from President Trump in August of last year. Excuse me, they didn't make themselves down as you. And you had some very bad people in that group. But you also had people that were very fine people on both sides. You had people in that group, excuse me, excuse me, I saw the same pictures as you did. You had people in that group that were there to protest the taking down of, to them, a very, very important statue and the renaming of a park from Robert E. Lee to another name. George Washington was a slave owner. Was George Washington a slave owner? So will George Washington now lose his status? Are we going to take down, excuse me, are we going to take down, are we going to take down statues to George Washington? So, of course, President Trump's comment, very fine people, became a powder keg, especially in the Jewish community. I can't tell you how many Jewish organizations and rabbis decided to seize on that comment. And I'm not here to defend that choice of words, even though, again, documented proof, there were a couple dozen folks who were there to protest in favor of First Amendment rights. The problem is, is that if you're the president of the United States, do you really want to single out that small group, again, when the woman was killed and when this whole thing was perpetrated by a white supremacist organization or organizations trying to stir up trouble in Charlottesville? I wouldn't have done it. It was a mistake by the President Trump, but it was a mistake of words and it was a mistake of choice of words. It was not a mistake of fact. The facts were on his side, folks. I hate to tell you that, it just is true. But anyone who was criticizing President Trump for using that choice of words and for, for focusing on that small group, I agree with you. I agree with you. That, that is absolutely a fair criticism of the president. But the point is, this became a cause celeb. This became the, quote, proof that Donald Trump was somehow anti-Semitic. And I think, really, there are a lot of people who could analyze the, the veracity of this. But really, the best person to do so was someone that will be really surprise you, not a Jewish person, not someone who really is quite well-versed in religious or race relations, but someone that you probably know. You probably are familiar with the comic strip Dilbert, one of the most brilliant comic strips ever to, to hit the American newspapers, written by Scott Adams. And Scott Adams followed the Charlottesville media response to it very, very closely and wrote a piece in early this year, early February of 2018, where he talked about how the news media absolutely did a bang up job of deceiving the American public into believing that President Trump's ill choice of words here was proof, quote unquote, proof that he was an anti-Semite, that he favored white supremacists, even though every rational person looking at all the facts, not only the facts of that incident, but the facts of President Trump and his life and his family would have to say that believing that he is a supporter of white supremacism, a supporter of racism, is just insane. It makes no sense. And I'm not just saying that because President Trump has a, a daughter, Ivanka, who's converted to Orthodox Judaism and lives an Orthodox life with her husband, Jared Kushner, and it makes no sense that he would support people who want to wipe them off the face of the earth. That's 
the easiest argument to make. There are better arguments to make, and we'll talk about that later. But the point is, this became the cause celeb. And rabbis and Jewish organizations all over the country throttled the president over this. And again, castigating him for a poor choice of words absolutely, I think, is fair. But to make this all about the end of the world type of situation and that there's somehow an anti-Semite in the, in the White House was really going too far. Now, I'm going to pause right now and talk for a second about what the real disgrace of Charlottesville was. And there was a disgrace. Now, of course, the first disgrace was that a woman died. Don't want to forget that. A woman, an innocent woman who was there to protest against white supremacists died through no fault of her own. And her, her case is one that we should remember. But there's a tremendously different and important disgrace of Charlottesville for all of us in the Jewish community that we must recognize. And I'm going to tell you what it is. There was a small synagogue in Charlottesville. Now, like I said, my father was a professor at the University of Virginia for several years. They did not live in Charlottesville because there really wasn't a real synagogue for them. My parents are traditional Jews, and they wanted to dive in, 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 in and pray in, in a traditional synagogue, and they didn't have that option in Charlottesville. But there is a small reform synagogue in Charlottesville. And of course, you remember this march happened on Saturday, so they were having Saturday services. They knew this march was coming for many weeks in advance. Did they have any security hired? to protect them on that day, knowing that there would be a problem. No. Did any members of that synagogue arm themselves with any type of weapon, not just a gun, to protect themselves and the rest of the synagogue? Answer, no. How did that synagogue end up getting spared the real potential tragedy of more death and more violence? It turned out a retired naval officer who just happened to be passing by the synagogue decided to stand in front of the doors of that synagogue and scare away anyone who looked like they were malingering around the building. Thank God for that man, non-Jewish man. I, we should all be thankful for him and his, his sacrifice because he could have really put himself in harm's way. And he did put himself in harm's way. But for a Jewish community of any size and a synagogue or Jewish organization of any size in this day and age, 70 years after the establishment of the state of Israel and all the lessons of self-determination, and self-defense that Israel has taught us, for them not to protect themselves when they had this kind of an advance notice of an attack, or at least an attacking potential, on their synagogue and on their own people, their, their own men, women, and children in that synagogue, is inexcusable. Now, we don't blame victims, and thank God there weren't victims in this case in that Jewish synagogue. But we do have to put ourselves on a much higher level of responsibility as a Jewish community. We no longer can just hope that some non-Jew will come save us at the last minute. It's really a disgrace what happened in that synagogue. And I repeat this message very often during the high holidays, even here in the New York area, where you have so many synagogues that are so squeamish about hiring armed guards. Armed guards that they wouldn't blink an eyelash if they saw an armed guard at a bank or at a sporting event. But God forbid you should have somebody with a gun, a trained off-duty police officer or what have you, at a Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur service where there are hundreds and maybe even thousands of Jews, complete sitting ducks for a potential attack that they won't allow. I'm sorry, folks, we are well past that argument. We Jews must take our defense into our own hands, either hire armed security, arm ourselves, and there are a lot of synagogues that have members who, who have concealed carry permits and their rabbis allow them to carry guns on, on Shabbat for, for these kinds of reasons. So this is very, very important. But I want to move on after this, because despite this Charlottesville hullabaloo that made such a big impact, then you had something else that happened at the end of last year 
And of course, it really was the biggest news for the Jewish community coming out of this White House, not only for that year, but probably in many, many years. And that was what President Trump had to say in December of last year about Jerusalem. Let's roll that tape. My announcement today marks the beginning of a new approach to conflict between Israel and the Palestinians. In 1995, Congress adopted the Jerusalem Embassy Act, urging the federal government to relocate the American embassy to Jerusalem and to recognize that that city, and so importantly, is Israel's capital. This act passed Congress by an overwhelming bipartisan majority and was reaffirmed by unanimous vote of the Senate only six months ago. Yet for over 20 years, every previous American president has exercised the law's waiver, refusing to move the U.S. Embassy to Jerusalem or to recognize Jerusalem as Israel's capital city. Presidents issued these waivers under the belief that delaying the recognition of Jerusalem would advance the cause of peace. Some say they lacked courage, but they made their best judgments based on facts as they understood them at the time. Nevertheless, the record is in. After more than two decades of waivers, we are no closer to a lasting peace agreement between Israel and the Palestinians. It would be folly to assume that repeating the exact same formula would now produce a different or better result. Therefore, I have determined that it is time to officially recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel. Now again, President Trump's decision to recognize Jerusalem as the capital of Israel does not make Jerusalem the capital of Israel. As we all know, it's been the capital of Israel for several thousand years. That is my point of Jewish self-determination. But what it does tell you is that the world is very likely to respect Jewish self-determination. So much of the folks who don't want Jews to arm themselves, don't want Jews to stand up for themselves, are living off of the false belief that if Jews stand up for themselves and do that, it will make the non-Jews hate us more, as if that matters. We have to defend ourselves either way. But the Trump recognition of Jerusalem proves that Jews insisting, insisting on this continuing, insisting on the world recognizing us, doesn't necessarily have to backfire. And finally, we had a president in this case who did the right thing. Now, what do I want to make sure everyone gets out of this half hour? A couple of things I'm just going to quickly mention before we finish. First is, we don't support presidents with a blank check, or and we don't oppose presidents with a blank check as Jews. As any sane person should do, Jewish or not, we support a president when he does something good and oppose him when he does something bad. If you're one of those folks who's sitting shiva because of whoever is in the White House right now, you're doing it wrong. Stop doing that. Second, every president is very complex. They'll do good things one day for the Jews and do bad things otherwise. The important point is that we take responsibility for the, for the, for the state of the Jewish people and not who the president is. We insist on people recognizing our, our rights, but it's up to us to make sure that we insert, assert those rights as much as possible. And we don't ever decide that because a president we don't like is in office, we use our Judaism 
to attack him. Judaism and our religion is above day-to-day politics. And if you're, if you're using your Judaism to decide who to vote for, either for president or for dog catcher, you're doing it wrong. This is Jake Novak. This has been Novak Now. Follow me on Twitter at JakeJakeNY and on Facebook. I hope we can continue the conversation and we'll talk again next week.